Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode 410 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 2. Mission Days 24 through 28. On Mission Day 24, something a bit unusual occurred. You see, during the first Cold War, President Nixon scheduled a summit conference with the General Secretary of the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev. The location was at the Western White House, which in 1973 was President Nixon's place in the sun in San Clemente, California. The conference was scheduled for June 18th through the 26th of 1973. Surprisingly, on day 24, Pete Conrad received a call from the president inviting Conrad and his crew to attend the conference. Of course, they accepted. You can't really say no thank you, Mr. President, or at least you couldn't in 1973. While speaking with Conrad, the president also wished the crew a happy Father's Day. On mission day 25, the crew was informed that they had surpassed the Russian space endurance record set by Soyuz 11 on Salyut 1 in 1971. Their record was 23 days, 18 hours, and 22 minutes. Unfortunately, the Salyut 1 crew did not make it home alive. If you'd like more information on that, I covered the mission on episodes 327 through 335. Conrad relayed Skylab's deep respect to the Russian cosmonauts, and the following day there was a reply from uh, Vladimir Shatilov, who said, quote, congratulations and a safe return, end quote. Also on day 25, the crew was told that most of the planned experiments for the mission had been accomplished. With 81% of the Apollo telescope mount observations completed, and 88% of the Earth Resources Experiment Package data runs completed, which gained 60% of the data logged, 
And in addition, the crew had logged more than 90% of all medical investigations, corollary experiments, and the planned five student experiments. But there was at least one more major task to do. This was an EVA to retrieve that priceless Apollo telescope mount film. Now, on a different subject, you may recall from a previous episode that I mentioned Joe Kerwin was working on a poem to his wife that tried to capture the sensations of living in space. And on day 25, he completed his poem. And I would like to read it to you now. I'm getting used to knowing how to fly. When I was young, I used to fly and dream. Up ways so high and easy, it would seem. As if earth wheeled and slanted and not I. I'm getting used to knowing how to fly. When I was young, I used to fly and dream. Up ways so high and easy, it would seem as if earth wheeled and slanted, and not I. And now it's real. We move that way at will, like dust motes in a sunbeam. Push away, drift down your own trajectory, tumble, play, and who can say what moves and what is still? In this high sunlight ship, the laws of space. Wait, without vertigo, mass without weight, entrain our nerve waves to their easy pace, as if this rhythm were our native state. What if man were an exile from the sky? Are we, perhaps, remembering how to fly? Okay, moving on to day 26. In the original flight planning, Conrad and Kerwin were supposed to perform a two and a half hour EVA on mission day 26 to retrieve and replace Apollo telescope mount film cassettes. However, as this was technically the third EVA of the mission, it was decided to replace Kerwin with Paul White's on the EVA. This would increase EVA experience among the astronaut corps. There was some discussion in having Conrad's crew deploy the A-frame solar shield, but they decided to let the second crew do that. Instead, Conrad would deploy a sample of parasol material from the A-frame cell such that Half of the sample would be in direct sunlight and half in shadow. This sample would be recovered during Mission 2 in order to test the long-term effects of the exposure on the solar shade material. During the EVA, Pete and Paul worked from what was known as the Base Camp. The official name was the Fixed airlock shroud station. It was located next to the airlock hatch. From this point, they began the ascent to the Apollo telescope mount between 
five workstations along a deployment assembly route, or as it was more commonly known, the EVA trail. In order for them to move along the route, double and single handrails were positioned for ease of movement. The double handrails resembled a ladder, but without the rungs, and the astronauts discovered that moving across them was not hard at all. One of the astronauts said that moving across the handrails was as easy as driving down a freeway. The rails were painted blue for better visibility, but they faded in the bright sunlight. And the alphanumeric designs that the astronauts called road signs turned out to be difficult to see in the sunlight. To move the Apollo telescope film canisters from the airlock to the Apollo telescope mount, the astronauts used a film tree, which was moved with three extendable booms located in the EVA bay near the fixed airlock shroud. The controls for these motorized booms were located next to the EVA hatch, and it was possible to operate them manually as well. Or, if that didn't work, they could use a backup pulley-type system that was called the clothesline. During the EVA, Conrad replaced canisters of film in the six experiments, cleaned the optics of the white light coronagraph with a fine brush to reduce the glare, and remove a tiny piece of debris from the rim of the coronagraph because it was blurring the view. Pete also retrieved exposed material samples from the exterior of the workshop that had been exposed since the launch six weeks ago. One final task in Pete's role of space repairman was to free a stuck electrical relay on circuit breaker relay module 15 that controlled one of the battery chargers. It was actually preventing a battery from charging. To perform the repair, NASA gave Pete some unusual instructions. He was told to hit the airlock skin over the device with a hammer. The procedure was a little more complicated than expected, so Pete had Rusty Swigert, who was Capcom, describe two times exactly where he was supposed to hit it. Joe Kerwin, watching from inside, made sure the charger was turned off. Then Pete gave the relay housing several hard hits. Paul White's radioed back to the ground. There it goes. Yes, boy, is he hitting it. Holy cats. Joe reported, Houston, EV3, he hit it with the hammer. I turned the charger on and I'm getting a lot of amps on the battery. Do you want to have a look? And Houston came back with, Okay, it worked. Thank you very much, gentlemen. You've done it again. Then Pete and Paul got back into the airlock. Strangely enough, it only took one hour and 36 minutes to complete the EVA. 
At the end of the EVA, the crew had a total of 5 hours, 21 minutes, and 3 EVAs, which was twice as much as originally planned. The crew did point out to Houston that they had done their thing with a hammer and a feather, sort of like Galileo or the Apollo 15 crew on the moon. After the EVA, the crew reported on the condition of the parasol, the Apollo telescope mount thermal coatings, and the coatings on the command and service modules, which had already been in space twice as long as any previous vehicle of its type. Now, these observations were very important to the lifetime evaluation for the Skylab 3 and Skylab 4 command and service module vehicles that were to remain in space at least twice as long as Skylab 2's command and service module. Finally, on day 26, the crew worked on several re-entry simulations for their return to Earth. That evening, Pete received the following message from NASA. Quote, to Captain Charles Conrad, Jr., on or about 22 June 1973, you and your crew will detach from Skylab 1, leaving it in all respects ready for the arrival of the Skylab 3 crew on or about 27 July 1973. You will then proceed by space and air to the USS Ticonderoga without delay and report immediately to the senior officer present afloat for duty. End quote. Wednesday, June 20th, Mission Day 27. In the morning, the Skylab crew was told not to record anything requiring immediate attention on B channel of the intercom because they would be home before it could be retrieved and acted on. Paul Weitz was subjected to the very last medical experiment. It was an exercise tolerance test. Next, there was a relaxed and upbeat press conference. Dr. Kerwin gave his preliminary appraisal of the medical effects of almost a month in space, saying, quote, Right now, the score is man three, space nothing. What's been such a pleasant surprise is how nice we feel. We're able to get up in the morning, eat breakfast, and do a day's work. I'm tremendously encouraged by the future of long-duration flights for that reason. End quote. Pete Conrad thought the most significant accomplishment of the mission was the rescue of the station and being able to hand it over to the next crew at almost full operating capability, and he agreed with Joe on the crew's condition. Neither Pete nor Paul thought they would have eaten as much as they did, and Pete believed he was in better shape now than he was at the end of his eight-day Gemini 5 flight. Paul appreciated how important it was to have very high-fidelity trainers and simulators on the ground. He said the things that were easy to do in the trainer were easy to do in space, most of the time. 
the astronauts had some unconventional advice for the next crew, which was, don't forget the learning curve, and don't worry about your training. Have fun, which seemed somewhat contradictory. After the press conference, the crew started packing and somehow got so far ahead of the flight plan that they decided to go to bed an hour early because tomorrow was going to be deactivation day. First call on day 28 was at 1 a.m. And for the first time, Houston woke the crew with music. They played That's the Lonely Bull in honor of Pete Conrad. Pete told Houston they should have started waking them up with music on mission day two. And with that casual remark, a tradition was born. Ever since, Mission Control has specialized in playing wake-up music for the shuttle crews and International Space Station crews, tailored to their personalities. Now the crew excitedly raced around the workshop. In fact, Paul Weitz was able to complete one trip from the command module to the trash airlock in 60 seconds, loaded with gear. He could do it in 20 seconds at max speed. He timed it just to help out the activity planners. The astronauts took front and side mugshot pictures of one another for the doctors. Joe squeaked his rubber ducky, the one his brother Paul, the Marine pilot, had carried on missions over Vietnam. Pete told Houston it was like a day-before-Christmas party up there. Everything was going well until 7.50 a.m. The trash airlock jammed. Since I haven't spoke much about the trash airlock, let me give you a few details about it now. I posted a picture of it on the website with this episode. The trash airlock assembly was a pass-through chamber attached to the top of the converted liquid oxygen tank. It extended through the floor into the cabin. It was located at the center of the bottom floor of the workshop. Each end of the chamber was equipped with a hatch, thus forming an airlock. The airlock was equipped with a pressurization valve that would port the airlock to either the cabin or the waste tank as required. On orbit, the trash disposal airlock was normally vented to the liquid oxygen tank that was renamed the waste tank. The airlock body was spherical, approximately 610 millimeters or 24 inches in diameter. It included a pressure gauge for viewing by the crew. It was equipped with a mechanical ejector to transfer the waste material to the waste tank. This was the basic procedure the astronauts followed to use it. First, pressurize the chamber to 5 PSI. This was done by moving the outer valve door handle, which had multiple positions based on the task it was performing. Then, unlock and open the inner door. Next, insert the trash bag. Then, close the inner door and lock it. 
Then vent the airlock to 0.5 PSI once again by using the outer valve door handle. Open the outer door. Use the ejector handle to push the trash into the waste tank and then close the outer door using the outer valve door handle. So this is how the airlock got jammed. The crew was jettisoning the charcoal canister through the trash airlock in accordance with procedures, and the canister got hung in the airlock. The crew immediately began to work the problem, and Pete reported it to Houston so they could work the problem as well. This was a very serious problem because if they couldn't close the airlock, the next crew would have no place to dump their trash. The canister was really stuck, and the situation did not look good for a solution in the appointed time. Back on Earth, Story Musgrave, Joe Kerwin's backup, went over to the mock-up to try to reproduce the problem and solve it. But finally... At 9.15 a.m., Paul Weitz reported that by a judicious application of muscle, the crew did manage to get the airlock freed up. So the trash airlock was operative once more. What really happened was they worked through the entire procedures list of solutions, then tried some of their own, and something finally worked. Everyone sighed with relief and swore never again to put something that big down without taping up all the edges. At 2 p.m., the crew went back to bed for a short five-hour sleep period, knowing the next time they woke, they would return home. But before we depart the station... I want to briefly cover some of the everyday activities that I haven't spent much time on. After all, these three men were the first to live on board the station and use the facilities provided for personal hygiene, crew comfort, and habitation. First, let's talk about sleep. The weightless condition also simplified sleep accommodations. Since there was really no up or down, the only requirement was a sleeping bag type of restraint. And as mentioned earlier, heavy objects were easily handled. As I have mentioned before, there were three sleep compartments provided, one for each crew member. Each contained a light, a sleep restraint, stowage for clothing and personal items, an intercom, towel holders, and a privacy curtain. The science pilot's sleep station was special because it included equipment that was associated with the sleep monitoring experiment. Each crew member could adjust the compartment's noise level, ventilation, and personal comfort to his liking. Complete body restraint was possible by adjusting fittings to suit the crew member's comfort level. The assembly had a welded tubular frame, a thermal back assembly, a comfort restraint, top and bottom blankets, a headrest and cover. 
There were additional blankets and headrest covers for exchange throughout the mission every 14 days. The restraints were adequate for keeping the crew member in place during sleep, yet they were still reasonably quick to get out of in case of an emergency. Of course, in a mission that long, there had to be some type of personal hygiene capability. The personal hygiene facility was located in the waste management compartment and was used to maintain health and personal grooming. There was a water module that allowed partial body washing. It consisted of a hot water dispenser with a washcloth squeezer. To use it, the crew would dispense water into the cloth, then put it in the squeezer to force out excess water into a bag that was drained through a filter into the waste tank through a vacuum dump system, allowing the crewman to use the wet washcloth as needed. Of course, I have mentioned before, there was a full shower. It featured a collapsible enclosure that utilized a constant airflow as a gravity substitute to move water over the astronaut. But they could only use a six-pound capacity water bottle. That is about 0.72 gallons or 2.72 liters of water. The bottle was filled from the waste management compartment water heater. The water bottle was then pressurized with nitrogen and attached to the shower's ceiling location. The crew used a manually operated handheld spray nozzle to dispense the water. The nitrogen gas pressure expelled the water from the bottle through a transfer hose to the nozzle and onto the astronaut. There was a soap dispenser that was attached by Velcro to the ceiling. It supplied one quarter of a fluid ounce of liquid soap for each shower. After that refreshing shower, the crew member removed the water from himself and the inside of the shower with a suction head that featured an air blower that pulled air through a filter that protected the blower and was connected by hoses to a centrifugal separator that deposited waste water in a collection bag. All mirrors on the Skylab were made of unbreakable polished stainless steel. Each crew member was given personal hygiene equipment that included a shaving razor featuring blades or a wind-up razor, a toothbrush and toothpaste, combs, brushes, nail clippers, scissors, files, shaving cream, hand cream, and body deodorizer. Drying stations were provided to dry towels and washcloths. In total, there were 840 reusable 
12-inch square washcloths and 420 reusable 14-inch by 32-inch towels. Washcloths were located in three dispensers, one for each crewman. The dispensers held a 14-day supply, generously allowing two cloths per day per astronaut. Nine lockers held the replacement washcloths. Towel dispenser modules in the wardroom held 18 towels each. This provided a six-day supply, allowing one towel per man per day. The washcloths were all made from rayon polynosic terry cloth and included colored stitching for individual crewman color code identification. Crew identification for the hygiene kits and dispensers featured a Charlie Brown's dog, Snoopy, emblem, also with color-coded backgrounds of red for the commander, white for the science pilot, and blue for the pilot. Now, moving on to the subject that seems to inspire the most curiosity. The management of body waste and daily trash of nine men for what became over 170 days of crude operation was a challenge, to say the least. To further complicate the design, NASA had known since 1968 that samples from the body waste were required for some of the medical experiments. NASA considered the two available systems. One devised for the U.S. Air Force's mole program and the other for the biosatellite program. From 1969 through 1971, the development of a suitable system for Skylab became a challenging problem of how to collect and store sample waste products. The task was further complicated by a restriction in being able only to test the design in parabolic flight on the so-called Vomit Comet in order to achieve zero-g. This difficulty resulted in a plan to fly the Skylab Fecal Collector on the Apollo 14 lunar mission. As you might imagine, this idea was met with a mixed reaction. The Manned Spacecraft Center Skylab office supported the test, while the astronaut office was indifferent to it. But when Al Shepard, the commander of Apollo 14, learned of the plan, he simply vetoed it. He was adamant that he would not include a fecal collector system in his mission objectives. On Skylab, the waste management compartment performed the same function as a toilet on Earth. However, there were some rather striking differences on Skylab. On Skylab, the user sat on a seat like he did on Earth. But instead of facing the wall, the user faced the floor. You see, the Skylab toilet was mounted on the wall of the compartment. 
Of course, this is not a problem in a micro-G environment. Nevertheless, in the case of a number two situation, there was a restraint to hold the user on the seat, like a lap belt, and there were handholds as well. For a urine-only visit, there was a pair of foot loops on the floor which allowed standing use with the urine collection device, and a blower unit provided a gravity substitute airflow suction to draw the waste towards either the fecal or urine collection systems. Solid waste was deposited in a bag that was removed after each use and replaced with a fresh new bag. The sealed bag was then weighed on a mass measuring device, vacuum dried, and stored in the waste management compartment. Urine was drawn into one of three storage areas by means of the astronaut's individual collection sheaves. And by the way, I have diagrams of all these items on the website. The urine was then stored for 24 hours. It was still difficult to collect the urine, separate the air, and withdraw a daily 4-fluid-ounce sample. A refrigeration coolant system called the urine separator was used along with the sample bag which was stored until the end of the mission. And, believe it or not, samples of crew vomit were also retained for post-mission analysis. The leftover urine was deposited with other biologically active waste such as clothing, filters, food, cans, sleep restraints, tissues, wipes, towels, washcloths, and other items in trash collection bags through the trash airlock into the oxygen tank below the wardroom floor. The bags were collected from eight locations around the station, usually daily, sometimes weekly, and were placed in the collector, sealed, and passed through the airlock into the oxygen tank. Now that I have grossed everyone out, let's talk about meal preparation. The Skylab diet was intended to supply the energy requirements for each of the crew members based on their own body, weight, and age. The recommended daily intake of calcium, phosphorus, sodium, magnesium, and proteins were managed to within 2% of the crew members' requirements. Each diet followed the National Academy of Science dietary guidelines on carbohydrates, minerals, vitamins, and fats. The selection of food from the varied menu was decided by the individual astronauts, but the guidelines still had to be met, with the final selection controlled by the nutritionist. The crew 
took turns being the meal preparer of the day. To prepare a meal, the chef of the day removed the chosen menu from the food lockers. Following the day's menu and color identification to the food trays. The trays could hold four large cans and four small cans. Three of the large holes were heated. Utensils were magnetically attached to the table, and plastic covers were used to keep the food in the open can to prevent it from leaking out into the station. The crew could sit at the table using special thigh restraints with their feet in portable foot restraints. And the final daily task was housekeeping. This consisted of vacuuming, dusting, disinfecting, taking out the trash, collecting the mail from the teletype, cleaning the windows and shower, cleaning the food preparation area, and waste management compartment. All of these things were daily tasks. What's even more remarkable was this crew completed all the primary objectives, most of the detailed test objectives, and out of 44 planned telecasts, they managed 28, plus 3 unplanned telecast. And, of course, the most important thing, they rescued Skylab from what seemed to be a certain failure. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 410 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 2, Mission Days 24 through 28. Our next episode should be released on or about April 6, 2023. Mrs. SRH is having a medical procedure done during the previous week and I have to take care of her. So episode 411 will be released one week later than normal on April 6th. Sorry for the delay, but we will have two new archive episodes released before the end of March as well. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box. I want to remind everyone that we have added two new methods of contributing to the podcast for your convenience. That is Zelle and Venmo. You can use these to send money to my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Webmaster Justin also put the QR codes for my Zelle and Venmo on the homepage for your convenience, and some of you have already begun using this, and we appreciate it. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 229 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. 
If you like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Space Rocket Hist. And you can follow on Facebook, search for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon.com slash Space Rocket History, where in addition to episodes, I post some extra things occasionally. Had a few afterthoughts on this episode. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. What did you think about Nixon inviting the crew to the conference with Brezhnev? I guess the president wanted to show off his astronauts to Brezhnev. I kind of imagine Nixon saying, Say, General Secretary, our astronauts are better than yours. They just beat your space duration record. Now, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that really happened quite like that, but... At least I got to try out my Nixon impersonation again. You guys remember the uh, stoic Brezhnev, don't you? The joke was when he was in power, if he ever smiled, his face would break. (laughs) But you couldn't say no to the invitation. That was a historic event. Who wouldn't want to witness when the heads of the two most powerful nations on earth met? I certainly would have liked to have been there, but I wasn't an astronaut. (laughs) I found that the Pete's crew's advice to the next group of astronauts coming up to Skylab was somewhat confusing. Recall it was, don't worry about training, have fun, but don't forget there is a learning curve. Now, isn't training supposed to help you with the learning curve? Doesn't practice make perfect? Well, giving them the benefit of doubt, maybe they were referring to adapting to zero-G. But isn't training in the pool supposed to help you do that? So I found that advice a bit contradictory. I don't think probably NASA appreciated it too much either when they said don't worry about training. Now, I used to think the shower in my camper was bad. And I spent quite a bit of time there and took quite a few showers. I mean, I probably lived at least two years in that camper, if you add it all up. But it was nothing compared to the shower on Skylab. In the camper, I had a luxurious six gallons of hot water. So... I had to get wet, turn off the water, soap up, then turn the water back on and rinse off. And I usually ran out of hot water about every time. But the crew of Skylab had .72 gallons of water and a quarter of an ounce of soap. (laughs) And I think they were pretty happy to even be able to shower in space. Look, it was a great improvement over all the previous generations of spacecraft. But it was available because Skylab had all that extra room. I wonder what NASA had in mind to test their fecal collector toilet on the Vomit Comet. I mean, did they ever solicit volunteers for that? Did that ever happen? They would 
you know, the volunteer would only get about 25 seconds to execute the procedure. That's how long you're waitless. Out of a 65-second period there, you're waitless for 25 seconds, and then it repeats. Then when, when you go from waitless to a high-gravity situation, there would be a radical change in the experiment. That would be a bit problematic, in my view. Al Shepard didn't want it on his spacecraft, that was for sure. So what do you do? You just pick some new guy that nobody likes, feed him a big lunch, and send him up on the plane? Sorry, somehow my mind just wandered off on that subject. In-house news, we're approaching one year since we moved in. We still haven't had anyone contact us about the warranty repairs. I can't say that I'm surprised to be getting the same level of customer service from America's home place as I did when they were building the house. On farm news, we got all our fencing mended for now, and uh, this past week or so we've been working on a covered shed out in the woods to aid us with our some of our sporting activities that we conduct out there. Now this shed is interesting. I've only had to spend $12. It's like Skylab. It was built with existing parts. <laughs> I, I've only had to spend $12 so far. I had to buy four 4x4s. Four now you don't get four 4x4s four by 10 foot long for uh, $12, but I had two leftover gift cards. The rest of the wood was left over from the house that we'd been that we put away after they were going to throw it away, so we just put that wood away under the uh, shelter and kelp it. And Webmaster Justin found some sheets of tin out in the woods that we're using for the roof. So <laughs> so we're doing pretty good on this project. Okay, that's all I have for my personal life. In donations over the past fortnight, we received seven uh, donations and pledges. I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who donated at the Voyager level and earned a Galaxy emoji. Colin C. donated at the Orion level. Stephen G. donated at the Vostok level. Mark U. from South Dakota pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. Brent M. pledged on Patreon at the Orion level and earned a shooting star emoji. Micah G. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. And George S. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. And I also want to give a shout out to Terry B. who sent me a very nice Skylab book. And he is from Alabama. Appreciate that, Terry, and all the donors. Our total Patreons for 2023 have reached 244. We have a goal, of course, of reaching 300 by the end of 2023. Our total donors, which includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and personal checks, have reached 282 with an overall goal of 450 for this year. 
So, if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for nearly 10 years without commercial interruptions, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com, clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link, or you can donate by check or use the QR codes to donate on Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now's an excellent time to complete it. We have several supporters who have earned the Galaxy Emoji for six years of support, and I want to give them a quick shout-out. Thank you, Martin, Dave H., Don, Peter Y., Jaco, DB, Jim B., Simon R., Angelo, Hefe, Jeffrey, Abby, Matthew M., John N., Simon P., Jeff R., Randy R., Shelby, Josh A., Tony, James S., Jerry A., Richard C., Jeff K., Daniel M., M. Olson, Anonymous, Christopher B., Carl H., Michael K., Ben K., Ken K., Nick, Paul N., Andrew S., Matthew T., Anonymous number 2, Alan, Todd, Justin, Kelsey, Tina, Ben, Scott, Ferens, Matthew F., David D., and Muriel. Thanks so much for hanging in there with us for six years. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the rare and beautiful SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Jason Dixon. Jason Dixon, if you will email us spacerockethistory at gmail.com Tell us your address and your SRH prize preference. We'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 284 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, our first space station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, NASA Skylab Owner's Workshop Manual by David Baker, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt. Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chaladic. The Internet Archive and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I will try to have episode 411 posted on or about April 6th. Stay healthy everyone and so long for now.